right, everybody, we're going to finish 2 Peter chapter 3. And with that, the entire letter of 2 Peter, it's powerful stuff. Last time, uh, we ended up talking about the Lord's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all will come to the knowledge of the truth. How many of you are thankful uh, for the patience of God? Amen? Now, as Peter's final letter comes to a close, he's going to talk about what's called the day of the Lord. All right, the day of the Lord, very important. What's the day of the Lord? Capital D, day of the Lord. It's the day of God's judgment. When you read about the day of the Lord, Old Testament, New Testament, it's always referring to uh, the day of God's judgment. And I I say here to our own congregation um, fairly often that there is a judgment coming. We like to talk about, you know, God's blessings and, you know, God's goodness, and I'm, I'm all for all of that. But we need to never forget to remind our culture, remind our lost culture, that there is a judgment coming. As surely as we sit in these chairs tonight, there is a judgment coming. And it's overwhelming in its scope. It, it's dreadful in its execution. Now, at first, Peter pinpoints the time of it. The day of the Lord, he says in verse 10, He says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So we're starting with verse 10, chapter 3, 2 Peter. And and here's what he says, first half of of verse 10, the day of the Lord, how's it going to come? Like a thief in the night. In other words, unexpected. Unexpected, unanticipated, it's a surprise. People are not going to see it coming. Just like they didn't see the flood coming. They didn't even, they never believed Noah until the rain began to fall and the floodwaters began to rise and it was too late. So will be the day of the Lord. Isaiah is the first prophet to use the phrase the day of the Lord. It's found in Isaiah 2 verse 12 and it occurs 20 times in the Old Testament, day of the Lord. Ezekiel, you'll find it, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Malachi all mention, all use that phrase, the day of the Lord. And it occurs four more times in the New Testament, twice by Paul, once by Peter, and once by John. So it's suffice it to say the day of the Lord is a repeated phrase. So clearly the Spirit of God was speaking all these different times through all these different men to be sure we caught it in his word that there is a day of judgment coming, a day of fierce judgment. Now, the awful event Peter is about to describe and that John describes in the book of Revelation in living technicolor give way to another day, not the day of the Lord, but what's called the day of God. So let's let's distinguish between the two. Day of the Lord is mentioned uh, 24 times. Day of God. The day of God is something different. The day of God refers to when a brand new heaven and new earth are literally created. Revelations 21 verses 1 to 8 is where you find it. On that day, the day of God, the Lord Jesus is going to deliver up the kingdom to God. That God may be all in all. And everything's going to be wrapped up at that point. Everything. Everything in the Bible. All prophecy will be completed at that moment. Revelations 21, 1 to 8. So Peter uses the expressions day of the Lord and the day of God both. 
to pinpoint the time of the fearful judgment that he's describing. Because this judgment closes the day of the Lord and begins the day of God. So the day of the Lord, now track with me because this is a little bit, a little bit complicated. The day of the Lord marks the end of the millennial reign of Christ. The day of the Lord ends on the last day of the millennial reign of Christ. And it ushers in the eternal state, the day of God. Eternity stretches out before us all on the day of God. That's the time of it. Now, next Peter describes the totality of it. Verse 10, second half, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. When does this happen? When the millennial ends. That's when this happens. When the millennium ends, the heavens pass away with a great noise. The elements melt with a fervent heat. We talked about this last time in the first half of chapter 3. Both the earth and the works in it are going to be burned up. That's the day of the Lord, the judgment of God. This is when God makes, brings an end to everything. Anything with the stain or taint of sin on it is burned up. All the evil works that are in the earth are going to be burned up. Everything is going to be absolutely uh, dissolved. He says, both the earth and the works in it are all going to be burned up. Now, i got to stop and think here. It always amazes me that here's an uneducated fisherman. Peter was never trained, not formally. He was trained by the master, but he never was uh, formally educationally trained. But here is this now quite old Simon Peter, you know, this former fisherman, describing the nuclear age in verse 10. Like, for instance, take the word elements. The elements will melt with fervent heat. This word in the original language meant the components into which matter is divided. Literally, elements. The components uh, into which matter is divided. That's the word he uses, the Greek word. So literally, the particles that make up matter that we discovered way down the tunnel of time, way later from Peter, as atoms. The atomic structure, the molecular structure of all things. So he's using a Greek word that literally refers to what matter is made up of. This is profound stuff. This is one of the reasons I know the Bible is the Word of God. Because how could he have known this? How could he have known this? This awaited the 20th century to discover these things. In today's language, this word would be used to describe atoms. So according to Peter and the Holy Spirit that moved on him to write this, when God judges the world on the day of the Lord, the very building blocks of matter are going to melt. This is astonishing because this is exactly what happens with a nuclear blast. And I'm not saying the world's going to end with a nuclear blast, but it will be like that. When God melts everything, it'll it will accomplish the same kind of thing. You could say a nuclear blast is sort of a foreshadowing of how God will actually melt all the elements on the day of the Lord. Let me give you an example. 
On July 16, 1945, at 5.20 in the morning, the first atomic bomb was exploded in the arid wilderness of New Mexico. An enormous tower had been built of 10-inch rails weighing 90 pounds per foot. When that bomb exploded, the first atomic bomb, we have bombs way beyond this one now, but this first one, when it exploded, that tower was vaporized and its debris was tossed seven miles into the sky. Did you catch that? That tower made of, made of 10-inch rails, that high tower, 90 pounds a foot, was immediately dissolved and vaporized. Debris was tossed seven miles high. Where that tower had stood remained a hole 60 feet deep and 5,000 feet wide. For 18,000 feet in all directions, the ground was boiled, fused, or melted into glass. That's the power of the first atomic bomb. I don't know how many megatons it was, but I know now the bombs we have far exceed that. But look at the damage this one did. And think about that, that, those phrases now. The ground, the dirt, was boiled, fused, melted. That's the word, the Greek word, describing the day of the Lord, what will happen to the earth under God's fire. Peter's use of the word fervent heat to describe the untying of the atom and the resulting rushing, fiery destruction that follows it. It's mind-boggling. Again, a first-century former fisherman is writing things that took man 20 centuries to discover. He also predicts by the Spirit that the heavens, the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. Now that phrase, great noise, is from a word referring to the whizzing of an arrow rushing to its target. There will be the whizzing rushing sound of roaring flames on the day of the Lord at the end of the millennium. Peter closes out his solemn description in verse 11. He says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, all what things? The earth and the heavens. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Well, reading that is enough to make me want to live in holy conduct and godliness. Amen? I mean, these are, these are sobering, somber, powerful, revelatory words. The word dissolve, all these things are going to be dissolved. Luo is the first Greek word I learned in Greek class. That's the first verb you learn in Greek class is luo. It means to loose, to break up, to destroy, to melt. And it conveys the thought of freeing something that has been bound. Uh, the Bible is literally telling us that at the end of the millennial age, all the elemental particles of matter that we call atoms, are going to be untied, are going to be literally released. You know, in the book of Colossians, 
Paul the Apostle by the Holy Spirit tells us that the very world, that the universe is being held together, the atomic structure is being held together by the Word of Christ. So apparently, it's the Word of Christ reserving the world to the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And when that day comes, the Word of Christ will unleash the atoms. Their energy, once they're released, will be set free. And Peter says, in light of these things, what manner of people ought we to be? Wow. Can anybody say holy? Can anybody say godly? Can anybody say walking in the fear of the Lord? Amen. And furthermore, those who are, verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day Here's this phrase, the day of God. So he's not saying the day of the Lord now, but he has transitioned to the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So the precursor to the day of God is the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is the judgment. Judgment begins with the burning up of everything, and then every person who ever lived and died in their sins being resurrected and brought before the judgment seat of Christ. Where they will answer for their sins without an attorney. There's only one attorney you can have, and that's our advocate, Jesus Christ. And they'll face him without him as an advocate. So knowing the world will one day come to a catastrophic end like this, we Christians above all others, should seek to live holy lives with our eye of faith turned upward to the imminent return of Christ, looking for that return, expecting that return, anticipating that return, excited about that return. And Peter again reinforces his point by repeating how the world will end melting with a fervent heat. That's how the world's going to end, not by climate change, not by nuclear explosions. The world's going to end with the day of the Lord and the judgment of God sending, I, I, I believe, Christ simply loosening the atoms. And so there is this cataclysmic atomic reaction all over the universe, and everything really basically implodes. So next he turns to the Christian's hope. Nevertheless, we, verse 13, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth. That's the day of God in which righteousness dwells. This points to the end of the millennial reign of Christ at the close of the day of the Lord. The Bible teaches that towards the close of the millennium, I don't understand this, this is what the Bible teaches. It's a fact. Towards the end of the millennium, because there's going to be people in the millennium having babies, uh, having children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. Only those that were raptured prior to the millennium will not marry, will not have children. But those that survive the great tribulation as believers and enter the millennium will marry, will have children. And as generations proceed, the Bible teaches that towards the close of the millennium, increasing numbers of people will render only feigned obedience to the Lord upon his throne as he rules the world from Jerusalem. 
So John writes, when the thousand years are over, Satan is going to be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, I, I believe, for 42 months, three and a half years. He'll be released again. Don't ask me to explain the ways of God. I don't understand why, except it's to test and prove the people who are on the earth who are truly with him and those that aren't. That's the only explanation. The release of Satan for a brief season does reveal the hearts of those who are truly his. And at the close of this season of testing, Satan will be hurled forever into the lake of fire, and we will never, ever hear from him again. Forever. And God will detonate the entire universe. The day of the Lord will come to an end, and the day of God will commence. So following this unimaginable event, a new heaven and a new earth is going to descend out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, in that beautiful and that powerful new heaven, new earth. Because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away and are no more. Now, now that Peter has described the enormity of what's coming, he turns to exhorting the saints. Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent to found, be found of him in peace without spot and without and blameless, with no blemish. The new heaven and the new earth to come are beautiful, glorious, and, and glory to God, totally absent war or conflict or temptation or sickness or disease of any kind. The world that they lived in at that time was Nero's world. And Peter says, this world's not going to last. So be diligent, saints of God. Be without spot. Keep yourself from being defiled. Don't become corrupted. Don't be seduced by this world or false teachers or false teaching. Don't suffer criticism for doing something wrong. Verse 15, consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. We're to interpret his silence and his patience as his amazing grace at work. Second half of 15, real important here. I want you to catch this because this is one of these uh, um, textual criticism verses that we need to take note of because here is Peter affirming Paul's writings to be Scripture. Not just writings, The scripture on par with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the rest. Look at verse 15. As also our beloved uh, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. In other words, a lot of what I told you, says Peter, Paul has echoed the same things. In which there are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, please pay attention here. Catch this. We have an amazing statement from the Apostle Peter here that Paul's writings were scripture. They were and are as much a part of the God-breathed Bible as all the rest, starting with the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, all the way down to the prophets, all the way down through the Psalms, Everything we consider the Word of God, Paul's writings are on par with the rest. It's the inspired Word of God, as were Peter's. Very important 
we're understanding that the whole Bible is inspired by God. All equally inspired. Peter recognized that some of the apostles, including Paul, have been chosen to add to the volume of the great book, the Holy Bible, with New Testament writings as inspired as the Old Testament. Now, he says some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, and they are. His teachings on marriage, the church as Christ's body, the liberated Christian conscience, Israel, spiritual gifts, the rapture of the church, and so on and so on, were utterly novel and unique and sometimes very difficult to grasp. You know, I read some of what Paul wrote. You take Romans 9, 10, and 11. You got to read those real carefully over and over again to track with Paul. Peter takes note that untaught and unstable people twist his writings to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. The word twist means to, to strain or to torture, it's to, to pervert the word of God. And Beloved, listen, I'm telling you, I know I'm a broken record here, but our own generation all over social media in so many different places is filled with this kind of tortured teaching. People just put Scripture on a torture rack and just torture the intended meaning. Men and women routinely stand to teach a Bible that, to my mind, they clearly have never studied. They twist and torture the meaning to communicate what they want it to say, not what God intended it to say. They redo it. They remake it. They revise it. They change it to their own liking. And don't forget, some of them are doing it to get your money. The person of Christ is routinely marginalized or transformed into a Jesus I don't recognize, I know many times you don't recognize. Um, His work is misrepresented. His teachings are recklessly misinterpreted. They twist and they torture the road to salvation with false concepts like the Mormons did. They present another gospel and another Jesus like all the cults have. And many false teachers in the body of Christ that we would consider mainstream are also doing it. And the only antidote to all the flood of false, weak, watered-down, twisted teaching is to know your Bible. So as Peter's last chapter winds to a close, he admonishes Christians to beware. The devil's on the prowl. The danger of false teaching is real. So he exhorts them, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. Do you hear this, saints? Be careful. You don't fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. As we say, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Uh, And this next to the last verse contains a primary reason for both of Peter's letters. The reason he constantly reminded and reminded and reminded them of certain truths so that they would not be led away by false teaching. Amen. So he closes out verse 18 with a wonderful verse. I'd like to all stand and let's let's just stand and and read it together, can we? Because this is powerful. It's up there on the screen. Let's read verse 18. Are you ready? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Amen. Can we say together, grace, 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 grow in grace. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this powerful letter. We thank you, Lord, for this letter that burned. We thank you for the incredible revelation written therein that tells us exactly how this world and this universe will end. Help us, Lord, to be uh, walking in the fear of the Lord, growing in grace every day, and looking for and hastening to the coming of the day of the Lord, excited about the imminent return of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.